You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org. Good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, my name is Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here. Thank you. Uh, I left that up there. My bad. That, I'm glad you're sitting back close to the front. Gavin's our tech guy, uh, so he gets the remote for the projector. Um, yeah, good morning. My name's Tanner House. It's good to be with you. If you're a guest, if you would take a minute and scan one of the QR codes or grab a Connect card off of the, uh, off of the resource wall back there in the back, we'd love an opportunity to connect with you, to serve you, to see how we can get you plugged in to the life of the body. And if you would like a, a Bible, you can raise your hand. Daniel will bring you one. Or if you're on your phone, we use the ESV. So we are going to continue walking through Philippians, and today we have arrived at probably the most important part of the text in Paul's letter. And this might be one of the most important texts in the entire Bible. In this text, which is also a hymn of the early church, we have some very deep and rich theological truths for us to, to mine. And then there's also some Christian ethics, some some behavioral things, if you will, for us to emulate. Paul, in the last section of his letter to this church, has called this church to humility and to service as people who have been changed by the gospel of Jesus to us. And in today's text, he is going to give us a more complete and a more full picture of the humility of Jesus. Paul brings us to the crucifixion. Paul brings us to the resurrection. Paul also brings us to the glorious ascension and reign of Christ for all eternity. And so Paul is going to call us to faith. And Paul is calling us to worship of Jesus because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. So this morning, we get to consider together the humility of Jesus in light of his lordship. We get to consider the sacrifice of Jesus to us in spite of our own sinfulness. And we get to consider Jesus' victory over sin and death. One of my favorite theologians, D.A. Carson, says the cross of Jesus can be viewed in five perspectives. Number one, the cross can be viewed from God's perspective. It says that Jesus died, the cross says Jesus died as a propitiation or substitute for our sins. That's 1 John 2, 2. He absorbed God's wrath, his rightful wrath, he absorbed it. He absorbed God's wrath against our sin and turned God's anger away from us. The cross can also be viewed from, from Christ's perspective. Jesus obeyed his Father perfectly saying, not my will, but yours be done. He carried out his assignment to give his life as a ransom for many. He was obedient. He was obedient to the point of death in perfect obedience. The cross can also be viewed from Satan's perspective because the cross means that the accuser has been defeated. The cross can be viewed from sin's perspective. The cross is the means by which our debt is paid. Our sin against God demanded a payment. The penalty of sin had to be dealt with and paid for. 
And Jesus paid for it. And Jesus paid it all. And then finally, the cross can be viewed from, from our perspective. While acknowledging all of these truths, while treasuring the love and justice of God, as well as the substitutionary life and death, and his victory over sin and Satan, we must also note then that the cross serves as the supreme standard of behavior for us. This passage today falls between the previous section where Paul is calling the church to unity and humility by loving and serving one another, and then it is also looking forward where Paul calls us to work out our salvation in fear and in trembling. But none of this is possible apart from the work of Christ on the cross. None of this is possible apart from Christ purchasing our salvation. And none of this is possible without the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Paul is anchoring his exhortation of the church at Philippi in the gospel of Jesus. Jesus Christ is more than our example to follow. We need his life. We need his sacrifice to us to pay for our sins. We need more than just an example to live by. We need a Savior. Because we fail to love God. And we fail to love others perfectly. Because we are treasonous rebels against God who has demanded perfection on our lives. We need Jesus' death and his resurrection to us. And because of what Christ has done for us, we have the power in us through himself by the Holy Spirit who indwells believers. We have the power then to follow him in faith and in obedience. So let's look at this powerful text together this morning and mine its depths for us. Let's pray first before we approach this text. Lord, we need you. Lord, show us our need for you. Lord, I pray that we may approach this text with some humility, Lord, with open hands before this text, because this text is going to impress on us our need for change and our need for grace and our need for mercy, Lord. And if we're honest, we don't always like that. So, Lord, I just pray for a lot of humility and a lot of vulnerability as we examine our own lives this morning. Lord, I also just pray for a lot of confidence that because of what you've done for us, you dwell inside of us as believers. And Lord, we don't have to be fearful. We don't have to walk in shame. We don't have to walk in condemnation, but we just get to live in light of your righteousness to us. So may we just rest in that. Church, if you're willing, I'd ask that you'd pray for yourself that the Lord would bring encouragement where encouragement is needed and conviction where conviction is needed. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5, Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Some other translations say, have this mindset, or have this frame of mind, or have this attitude. 
I like how the New American Standard translates it. It says, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Paul is calling this church to have a Christ-like attitude in order to promote unity and humility in this church. He has mentioned that in verse 4, that that they are to have this mind, they are to have this attitude, because it was also the attitude of Christ as Jesus Christ went to the cross. Paul is calling them to this posture. We are again, church, reminded of our union, which we have in Christ. Because of his resurrection, because he has purchased us with his blood, we are then united to Christ. It's our identity. We are in Christ. It's where we belong as believers. We are in Christ. Meaning that when God looks at us, he sees Christ's perfect life. He sees Christ's perfect death. And he doesn't see our sinfulness. He doesn't see our rebellious condition. Because by believing in and following Jesus, God then has made us a new creation. Our old nature was crucified with Christ, and he gives us his nature. And he comes alongside of us to help us walk in holiness and walk in obedience. So now that we are in Christ as his chosen and beloved children and are a part of his church, the bride of Christ, we can now live out the calling of our lives as Christians to be imitators of Christ. And out of that union with Christ, we are called together into this wonderfully messy family, the church. So Paul has called us to humility within the church, which will lead to love and care and sacrifice and service for one another. Paul is calling us then to have this mind, the mind of Christ, within the context of the church. In short... Paul is telling us to have the attitude and the actions of Jesus. So as we walk through this hymn together, let that be our guide. Do we imitate Jesus? Do you imitate Jesus? Are you marked by the type of humility that seeks to serve Or are you marked by selfishness? Paul calls us here to imitate Christ. And who better to imitate than Jesus? Jesus is the perfect picture of humility, the perfect picture of sacrifice, the perfect picture of servitude. And through his perfect sinless life, completed by his death and his resurrection, Christians have been redeemed. Paul then leads us through this glorious hymn that is broken up into two parts or stanzas if you're an old school church music person. So we have in one stanza Christ's humiliation and in the second stanza we have Christ's exaltation. So we're going to start by looking at Christ's humiliation and since this is a hymn, I'm going to sing the verses as I read. Just kidding. I thought the laugh would come a lot quicker. Y'all kind of took me seriously, which means I sing too much just goofing around. So uh, noted. I'm self-aware. I'll make some changes. All right. Paul tells us to have the mind of Christ. And then in verses six through eight, he says, who, 
though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We have a picture of Jesus. The text says he is in the form of God. The Greek is this word morph, meaning Jesus is God. We see in verse 6 that Jesus pre-existed. Jesus was there at the beginning with God as God. Therefore, he is equal to God the Father and God the Spirit in worth, in value, in dignity, and authority. John 1, beginning in verse 2, it says, He was in the beginning, he, being Jesus, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus was an active part in creation, because again, Jesus is God. Jesus is divine. And as God, therefore, he has the same nature, the same character, the same substance, the same form, the same morph as the other members of the Trinity. The Trinity being God in three persons, equal and distinct, three in one, and one in three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus was not a created being, as some say. Jesus is God. Jesus is God the creator. Jesus has no beginning. And Jesus has no end. At the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, this was settled as the two major players in this debate debated over the origins of Christ. One heretic, his name was Arius, taught that Jesus was the first and greatest creation of God the Father. He was defeated by the arguments of Athanasius, who took a stand on the biblical witness saying that Jesus was fully God. Jesus is fully God, being the same essence with the Father. And so out of this, we have what's known as the Nicene Creed. It says, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Then we have what's known as the Council of uh, Chalcedon in uh, 451 AD, and there they debated over the two natures of Jesus. Essentially, there was this man, his name was Eutychus, and he was claiming that Jesus couldn't really be God while he was on earth. That when Jesus was born, he ceased to be God until he ascended and, and resumed his, his place as God. But if this were true, and if this were possible, then Jesus couldn't be and wouldn't be who he said he was. But at this council, we have these faithful leaders from the church of Ephesus affirming that Jesus is fully man and fully God, united in one person, pre-existing forever. They say, and we agree, the Lord Jesus Christ is to be in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, and inseparably forever. This is where we get this term 
hypostatic union. If you like theological terms, Devante's in the back. Thank you for filling the gap for me. And that says that all three persons of the Trinity, the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, are united equally and eternally in worth, in value, in dignity, in authority, in separate and distinct roles. And Jesus exists as God, though having two natures, one divine and one man. And behold, I tell you a mystery. Jesus is God, always and forever. I'd like to make a sidebar, a little shameless plug for the resource wall. I bought these two books this week. This one's called Know the Creeds and the Councils, and this one's called Know the Heretics. Uh, These are important reading as, you know, There is nothing new under the sun, and people make claims about Christ and the church and God himself, and we have a couple thousand years of history that would support the claims of the Bible. And these are really easy reads, and I bought enough back there for a couple of you. So um, go go take a look, and if we need to get more, I can do that. So um, yeah, know the creeds, know the councils, know the heretics. Back to the text. Jesus is God, always and forever. And though that be true, Jesus Christ did not count his equality with God as a thing to be grasped. There is no competition within the Godhead. That's counterintuitive to us. But the Son and the Father and the Spirit are equal in authority. And yet Jesus, as God, submits himself to the will of God the Father. We have in Jesus Christ a picture of a selfless nature and character of Jesus as he is giving of himself. Jesus could, Jesus could have, as God, remained enthroned forever and left us exactly as we were. Wandering in our sin, wandering in our shame, no hope for rescue, headed towards hell. And that would not have changed who he is. He would still be a powerful creator. He would still be deserving of glory because he is above all and sinless. He didn't have to leave heaven for us but he was moved by love, moved by love for us and love for creation. And because he is God, and God is rich in mercy and grace and kindness, he laid aside his privilege as God and descended to earth in humility. Theologians refer to this as the renunciation. It's like a formal rejection, like I renounce my religion or whatever it is you want to renounce. Jesus is renouncing, in a sense, his divinity for a moment. The pre-incarnate Christ relinquished his pre-incarnate benefits and came to earth. He emptied himself of his existence of a matter that is equal to God. One commentator, he says, he gave up his favorable relation to the divine law, and he gave up his riches and his heavenly glory. While he was still in heaven, no burden of guilt 
rested upon him. But at his incarnation, at his birth, he took the burden upon himself and began to carry it away. At the incarnation of Jesus, at the birth of Jesus, we see Jesus Christ, the perfectly righteous one, the one who had never committed any sin at all, began to complete his work by making himself sin in our place so that through his righteousness, we then could become the righteousness of God. Jesus made his dwelling among sinful humanity. Can we think about that for a second? Jesus dwelled in heaven as God. This Jesus whom the angels had to cover their faces in adoration of him voluntarily got up from his divine throne and came to us. And when he got here, he was despised and rejected. He emptied himself and became the very opposite of what he was. He took on human nature. And this is really good news to us because in order to be saved, we needed a Savior who could fulfill the law's demands. The law which required perfect obedience. We could never keep it. But Jesus did. The master of all, the Lord Jesus, became the servant of all. Jesus is the true and better Adam. Tony Merida highlights the differences between Christ and Adam. He says, Adam, in an effort to be like God and exalt himself, succumbed to temptation and brought a curse, the curse of sin and all of its consequences. He brought a curse into the world. Christ, in contrast, though he was God, took on the likeness of men, emptied himself, overcame temptation, and crushed the tempter. And he took the curse of the world on himself. Adam was condemned and disgraced. Christ is exalted. Christ surrendered his rights as God. And though he did not cease being God, Jesus is fully God and fully man. He will be this one person for all eternity. And though he was God, he took on the form of a servant or a slave. Meaning this, slaves are deprived of all of their rights. Jesus became this. He became nothing so we could become everything. And this servitude does not just take place on the cross, but Jesus, by becoming flesh, demonstrates sacrificial servitude throughout his whole life. Jesus as a man is like us in every way, yet without sin. He was tempted in every way that we are tempted, yet he did not sin. 
Jesus came to earth through the miraculous birth of a virgin. He was wrapped in cloths used to wrap dead people for burial and laid in a manger. He grew up and he worked and he was hungry and he got tired and he got thirsty. He cried. He lived like a person because he is a person. And he lived in obscurity for 30 years, serving and loving those who would otherwise be considered unlovable. And he was despised and rejected. And yet, he was still willing to go to the cross in complete submission and obedience for those who despised him and those who rejected him. He bowed himself to the will of God. Philippians 2.4 says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Jesus has done that for you. Jesus has done that for us. He died. Jesus, the great high priest, offered himself. He died the death that was ours to die because of our sin and because of our disobedience and because of our rebellion, and yet he willingly died. The text tells us even to the point of death on a cross. So I think 2,000 years removed from this cross event, uh, the cross as a, as a cross uh, has lost some of its force in culture. So like in Jesus' day, no one would have ever used the cross to decorate their house. No one would have ever put it on a necklace and walked around with it, and nobody would have ever gotten it tattooed on their body because it was an instrument of torture. It was shameful to speak about it, much less to be proud of it. And you would never have put it on your body. Or you would have never hung it up in your home. The Romans would use crosses to execute the worst criminals. It was, for the day, the most shameful and brutal way to die. After a series of beatings, the condemned person was stripped naked and was then forced to carry their own cross outside of the city to be brutally and publicly executed as they are nailed to this cross, this wooden cross. In the minds of the Jews during this day, dying on a cross meant that the person was cursed. Deuteronomy 21:23 says, For a hangman is cursed by God. Jesus became our curse. Jesus took our shame and our curse upon himself. And he died. All of that should have been ours. All of that should have been ours to bear because of our sin and because of our rebellion against God. But Jesus took it upon himself. Jesus through his humiliation has purchased our pardon. And can we just think about what a costly pardon that was? 
and what that is. God didn't just look at you and say, it's okay. It's okay that your heart is set in opposition to me. It's okay. It's okay that you're wicked and rebellious. No, God didn't say that. God didn't just look at you and say, I forgive you. All this stuff that you've done, I forgive you. That would not be a just God to call wrong things right. Our sin demanded a payment. And that payment was made by Jesus leaving heaven, coming to earth to be rejected and mocked. And then physically, spiritually, and emotionally, he took on our sins, becoming our sin, experiencing for the first time ever in his pre-existent existence, he experienced separation from the Father as he is dying a shameful and very public death. Christ has forgiven you, Christian, because your sin has been paid for. There is now a calling in light of the context of this passage. As Paul says, to count others more significant than yourselves, there is now a calling for you to lay down your life like this. The implication then is that Christ has humbled himself so very deeply, you then, Christian, should be willing to humble yourself in servitude for others and should be willing to humble yourself in obedience to God who has died for you. Humility is an active relinquishment of yourself for the benefit of someone else and for the benefit of the church. Think about it like this. For us to forgive and serve one another, which we are commanded to do in Scripture, we also have to absorb the cost. Tim Keller gave this illustration that if someone comes to your house and accidentally breaks a lamp, for example, you can say, it's okay. It's okay. But you are absorbing the cost of that lamp and having to purchase a new one. That's what forgiveness requires. It absorbs some cost that is not yours. That's what Jesus has done on a cosmic and eternal level. And he did so not because we are accidentally sinners. But he did so because we are outright treasonous rebels. We are in treasonous rebellion against God and against Jesus. We like it that way. And Christ absorbed that. And because of his act, we are now required and now equipped and now enabled to forgive in the exact same way. When we submit ourselves to Christ, we are opposing ourselves to our own self-glorification. We lay that aside and pursue the glorification of Jesus. 
we humble ourselves and admit that apart from Christ, we are helpless to do anything on our own. The way to salvation is through the humility to say that we need it. Jesus Christ, the pre-existent God of creation, endured the cross, the physical torment and the spiritual anguish of having the sins of humanity laid upon himself as God turned his face away. Jesus endured the wrath of God in your place. He submitted himself to the most degrading of all deaths in order that we can have salvation. And that should move your heart to worship. Christ was then buried and all seemed lost for three days. Yet, thanks be to God, this is not how the story ends. Jesus rose. And Jesus is exalted. Let's look at the exaltation of Jesus together. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Not only is Jesus exalted, but Jesus is highly exalted. So let me unpack this for a second. Exaltation belongs to you as a believer. Matthew 23, 12 says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So exaltation belongs to believers because it takes an act of humility to surrender ourselves to the calling of Jesus on our lives. We submit ourselves humbly to Jesus. When we repent of our sin... And when we repent of our unbelief, we are saying that we cannot do anything on our own. We have no hope to save ourselves. We have no hope to self-rescue. We need the work of Jesus on our behalf. We have to admit that we are broken and needy and in need of grace and in need of mercy of Jesus, which he so richly and freely gives us. But our exaltation as believers is not like Jesus' exaltation. When the text says he has been highly exalted, it means he has been like super exalted, uh, far above anything else. God, the Holy Spirit, in power, has raised Christ from the dead, and at his ascension, he then takes his seat at the right hand of the Father, where he reigns and rules as God, elevated to the highest level possible. He has ascended high above heaven and high above earth. That's Ephesians 4.10. And by his exaltation, he is ruling and reigning from a place of glory and a place of honor and a place of majesty. Jesus' exaltation is a reversal of his humiliation. This Jesus who stood condemned to die a sinner's death, this Jesus who had the full weight of sinful humanity placed on him by God, who was pleased to crush him, this Jesus who was despised and rejected is now seated in glory. And he's now beloved. 
and he's now accepted. And he's now ruling and reigning as king of the universe. And he is given a title. The Greek literally says he is graciously, wholeheartedly granted unto him. He has been given the name that is above every name. What is this name? Well, the text doesn't say. So it's not really fruitful to like debate these things. But here is what we do know. It's far beyond that of every creature in the entire universe. So the speculation amongst scholars and theologians is that it's a regal name. Many suggest, and I tend to agree with their suggestion, that it's something like Jesus is Lord. When we say Jesus is Lord, what are we saying? We are saying that Jesus is the ruler. Jesus is the master. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the most high. Jesus is the most sovereign. Jesus is over everything. Jesus is Lord. Therefore, when God has given Jesus the name that is above every name, this name then must describe to Jesus not only worth and value, but also status and authority and position. Because he has defeated the ultimate enemy of sin and death and now is ruling. And so at this name, whatever this name may be, at this name, every knee will bow. Those who are with God in heaven now will bow before him. Those who have yet to die will bow before him. And those who are in hell separated from God will confess that he is Lord and bow before him. The redeemed in the Lord, along with the angels at the return of the Lord, will worship him fully and joyfully for who he is and what he has done. Those under the earth, meaning those in hell, presumably the demons there also, will also confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There are some that will do so willingly as recipients of God's grace. Some people, not people in hell, just generally speaking. Some will confess Christ as Lord willingly as recipients of grace. And then those that are separated from God will confess from a place of remorse and despair and anguish. And it will be too late. Marita says that there is an already not yet component to this. As believers, we confess him as Lord now, but we also look forward to the future when we will all acknowledge his lordship and believers will be with him forever. We look forward to that day. We look forward to that day, to the glory of the Lord. Jesus' life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his exaltation all bring glory, praise, and honor to God. Jesus receives his just reward because he has done what we could not. He has defeated sin. He has defeated death on our behalf, and he is then exalted. The Father is glorified through the humiliation of Christ because in this humiliation of Jesus, we see Jesus being obedient to God, honoring the Father, and because of his obedience, the curse of sin is now broken. 
And now believers can be set free from the curse of sin. And believers will be exalted in Christ. And the Son of Man is glorified through his and the believer's exaltation. And all to the glory of God himself, who has made a way for sinful humanity to be redeemed and restored. So we're going all the way back to verse 5. Set your minds on Christ. We are called then, believers in Jesus, to remember that we exist for his glory and his glory alone. If you've ever wondered what your purpose is in life, that's it. To live for God's glory and his glory alone. Because of the cross of Jesus, you've been set free to live for him, to love him, to serve him for his good glory. And now you have two choices. Your two choices are this. Faith in the finished work of Jesus on your behalf or rejection. Rejection of Jesus. Christ has served us by becoming death for us. The invitation then is faith. Faith and obedience through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit that makes that possible. Christ has emptied himself for you in order that you can be redeemed and restored back to God. What a privilege. What a privilege. Jesus, the Lord and master of the universe, has made a way for us to know him. And not only that, he wants us to know him. Jesus stoops down from heaven and cleanses us from all of our sin and shame and was a perfect example of obedience. Jesus willingly went to death for you on your cross and died your death and defeated your sin and took on your shame. You've been set free to worship him and delight in him. The work has been done for you. You don't have to earn this salvation because you can't. Christ is willing to forgive you and is inviting you to himself. And all that is required of you is faith. Faith is given to us by the Spirit of God to admit our brokenness and our sinfulness. Faith looks at the cross and says, we are broken and Christ has made a way. Or we can look at the cross and resurrection and think, I'm too far gone, or I'm not good enough, or I'm not that bad. But what the life of Jesus shows us is that we can't be good enough on our own. And even if we could be good enough on our own, we wouldn't be because our hearts are so sinful. Jesus is offering you himself. You have not outsinned God's ability to forgive he is inviting you into sonship to be his son or his daughter. One day, on that day, when every knee will bow, if you wait, it will be too late. If you wait until you are better, you'll never make it. Because again, you'll never be worthy of forgiveness apart from Christ. And you will never be able to convince yourself otherwise. That's the work of the enemy, 
trying to convince us that we're okay or that we're very much beyond okay and beyond the saving grace of Jesus. The invitation from God is to not clean yourself up and come to him. It's not to wait until you do something so awful that you can't deal with it on your own. No. The invitation is to see yourself for what you truly are. A sinner in need of grace. And this grace is that which you don't deserve and you can't earn, but it is being freely offered to you. You can never be good enough on your own. But we have a cross that says you're loved in spite of it all. You're loved in spite of your sinfulness. And you have an empty tomb that says God has accepted you. God has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf. So repent. Repent, receive his forgiveness, turn from your sin, and may that cross and resurrection lead you to worship and delight. Let's pray.